for you as well, Richard. Thank you. Is that all right? Yeah. Lord, we thank you uh, for Richard. We thank you, Lord, for uh, all that you have called him to. Uh, and Lord, thank you, Lord, for all that he's done in preparing for this talk this morning. Open up our hearts, open up our minds uh, to what you are saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks very much, Paul. Um, I just want to say how, before I start, how amazing it is to have Dan here and share a little bit of what he's been doing. And um, as we were worshipping this morning, we had Asher and uh, Alfie on the PowerPoint, and I'm sure lots of other kids have been involved in um, helping this morning and other mornings. It's amazing, isn't it, to see our young people growing in that, and it's brilliant to be able to encourage them in that. So um, maybe pray for Dan over the course of this week, and perhaps if there's something that you feel like God is speaking um, uh, to you about that you want to share with him, maybe just make a note to do that. I think that would be really encouraging for him. It's certainly really encouraging, I think, for, for me to see the young people getting involved in our church like this. So uh, where are we? Well, we're continuing our series on Nehemiah, building together, and we've reached chapter 5. I'm afraid there is a fair bit of Bible text this week, um, and I happen to be reading Anne of Green Gables. No Bibles just yet, but thank you. Anne of Green Gables, which I find a source of great inspiration. Um, Anne was visiting Avon, the Avonlea Church for the first time, and she said this about the sermon. I sat just as still as I could, and the text was Revelations, third chapter, second and third verses. It was a very long text. If I was a minister, I'd pick the short, snappy ones. And the sermon was awfully long, too. I suppose the minister had to match it to the text. Well, you'll be pleased to hear that I have got a deadline. So I'm going to be shorter and snappier. Um, but um, remember I had that word that I spoke about earlier, about being bold. I hope what I'm going to say is going to challenge you, and I'm going to be bold in challenging you about it this morning. So a little bit of a health warning. Now, you'll need two things. You'll need a Bible. So if you've got a Bible, great. If you haven't, put your hand up. And uh, Susie, thank you very much, is going to distribute Bibles. Keep your hand up if you'd like a Bible. And I've not done a PowerPoint this morning, but I've done a handout, which Tessa is going to come and distribute um, and the idea behind that is not because I'm lazy, because actually I think it took me longer to do the handout than it would have taken me to do the PowerPoint. But I wanted, that'd be great, Tessia, if you could hand it out. I wanted you to have something in your hand that you could take away um, at the end of today and just reflect on and think about in the coming week. So whilst those are uh, being passed around, if you've got the red Bibles, we're on page... 344, Nehemiah chapter 5. If you've got a green Bible, I'm sorry, I don't know where it is, but um, if you need some help, so 363 in the green, 344 in the red, 363 in the green. Thanks, Alenza. Well, let's bring us up to date. Nick started off in week one summarizing the background, and you may remember that David, King David, was ruling in Jerusalem, and his son after him, Solomon, built a fabulous temple to the Lord. And it was the height of the power of the kingdom of Israel. But Solomon turned from God, and the kingdom was divided. And some followed God, and... Are you waiting for a Bible at the back? No, you're right. Some followed God, some rejected him. 
And the northern kingdom, Israel, was overcome and the people were exiled or kicked out in around 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, was conquered by the Babylonians, and we'll come back to them in a moment. And some of the people were exiled in 650 BC. There was another exile in 597 BC. And then the last king rebelled, and there was a siege. And in 586 BC, the kingdom was destroyed, and the remaining people were sent away to uh, live in exile. The temple was burnt. The walls were destroyed. The city was left in ruins. But then time moved on, and um, the Babylonians were conquered by uh, Cyrus of Persia. And he had a different policy towards nations that had been conquered. He allowed the people to return to their homelands and to worship their own gods. And in 537 BC, so about 50 years after the events I've just been describing, 50 years after Jerusalem was destroyed, a group of exiles returned to Jerusalem. And about 80 years after the city was destroyed, the temple was rebuilt. But the rest of the city and the walls remained in ruins. They tried to rebuild them, but there was a lot of opposition, and they stayed as they were. And then Ezra started preaching and teaching to the people about God's laws in 458 BC. And in 445 BC, we start Nehemiah. So we're about 140 years or so after Jerusalem was destroyed. And Nick, in the first week, um, drew an analogy between a city without walls and us leaving our houses unlocked at night and how that might make us feel a bit vulnerable, um, a little bit unsafe, um, a sense of uh, danger. And Nehemiah um, heard about the problem that the people in Jerusalem had with the wall not being built. And he prayed a prayer, a model Nick suggested for us to pray, reflecting on God's power as creator, remembering who we are in God, God's servants, and being honest about our current situation, and then remembering God's promises and bringing our requests to God. Now, who remembers what role Nehemiah was carrying out in the king's palace? Does anybody remember? Either you weren't there, or you weren't listening, or you're too shy. What did Nehemiah do in the king's palace? I'm not going to, you did the sermon, you know. Come on, somebody must remember. What was Nehemiah? What was his role? Sorry? The cupbearer, that's right. So um, his role was to taste the wine or the, the drink, to check that it was safe for the king to drink. So it was a very important role that he had. And so he needed the king's blessing to go back to Jerusalem. He couldn't just up sticks and go there and help his people to rebuild the wall. But he didn't rush into asking um, the king if he could go. He prayed about it. And uh, in week two, Paul picked up in chapter two uh, that he prayed and fasted between what would have been November and March the following year. And then the time arrived and the king said to him, Nehemiah, why are you looking so sad? And Nehemiah didn't suddenly blurt out, well, it's because of my people and the walls and all the rest of it. He prayed. He sent a... Well, Paul called an arrow prayer, just a quick little prayer up to God. God, help me in this situation. And God did. And Nehemiah went with the king's blessing back to Jerusalem. And Paul's take-home message, or at least what I took home, was that when we step out for God, there are two things we need to remember. First of all, prayer is key. And secondly, we're going to face opposition. And we need to pay attention to that, but not dwell on it. 
we moved on to week three, and Michael uh, was preaching on the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem. The walls were in ruins. He didn't start picking up stones and stacking them one on another. Nehemiah thought about it. He reflected. He had a vision for rebuilding the wall. And then he built a community around that vision. And the result of that was that almost everybody, not quite everybody, because there was uh, one family group that didn't get involved, um, almost everyone got involved in rebuilding the wall. And then last week, the walls were being rebuilt, but there was opposition. And it was in bucket loads. And um, the result of that was that the builders had to work with swords in their belts, and half the people had to be equipped to defend the city. And notwithstanding that, actually the walls were rebuilt in 52 days. That brings us to chapter 5. Now, I feel like I've been dealt a difficult hand with chapter 5, because chapter 5 is not about rebuilding the walls, because something happened in chapter 5, probably to bring it all to a halt. Now, I always find it a bit of a challenge thinking of the title for my sermon. I agonize over it. Um, I think the reality is probably no one ever really notices what the title of your sermon is, and they certainly don't remember. I suspect the only person here this morning who knows what the title of the sermon is is Susie, because she emailed me twice, thankfully, because I changed it slightly. Um, And she will remember it because I said the title is, eventually, Nehemiah did it God's way to the tune of Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Um, Which I think deserves a round of applause, actually. (laughs) And I hope with that rendition you're not going to forget it because um, whilst I'm talking about Nehemiah doing it God's way, the challenge is to you to do it God's way. And that's where I'm heading towards at the end of this talk this morning. Now, why is this a difficult chapter? Well, as I say, it's a bit of a pause in the rebuilding saga because it's a story of conflict within and a story of generosity to the poor. It's always good to quote famous people in your sermons because it makes you look more learned. Um, Gandhi said, um, a nation's greatness is measured by how it treats its weakest members. And chapter 5 is really about um, how the Jewish people were treating their weakest members, the weakest members in their society. Now, I've recently been reading a book um, that someone recommended to me called Justice for Children and Families. It's published by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. And there's a research paper in that from some Austrian researchers uh, that says this, the extent and depth of child poverty is one of the most serious problems of today. Despite the absence of consensus on how it should be conceptualized and measured, all existing studies are clear in stating that the figures are alarmingly high. And then they give some data for the EU. So think of the EU, 28 at the moment still, not wanting to bring Brexit back in and follow up on Michael's encouragement that we need to talk more about Brexit from his talk. 28 countries of the EU in Western Europe, um, which are, relatively speaking, well off. And they say this, child poverty is a severe injustice from which those children in the European Union, they make up 20% of the total infant population, neither necessarily nor naturally suffer. 
but rather it's the result of systemic failure of respective societies in providing adequately for all of their children. 20% of the total infant population in the EU, 20% of the infants in the EU living in poverty, that's one in five, and I find that a shocking figure, and certainly not something that I had previously been aware of until I read that. In a related context, you may have seen two or three weeks ago some articles in the news about uh, how children in care are treated, particularly 16 and 17-year-olds, who um, many of whom in the care system end up in supported accommodation. So without mum and dad and without a, a, an adult fulfilling a, a, a key parental role, and the news was reflecting on the increased risk that they suffered of getting drawn into uh, gang membership and criminal activity. Now, um, it's not um, convenient, really, for us to stop and think about that. Um, I did, because I was writing this sermon. If we think of our own children, or other people's children who we know, who are 16 and 17, or ourselves, and we ask ourselves, how would I have fared in that situation? Or how would that child fare in that situation? And I think the reality is, when we do stop and think about it, it's quite frightening. It's quite sobering. I don't think I would have fared very well in that situation. I, I think that I would have sunk. It's very easy to respond to that by blaming other people. It's very easy to respond to that figure of one in five infants in the EU being in poverty by blaming other people. And we might choose to blame our government or other people's governments. We might choose to blame children's social care or social workers, but I would suggest that would be wrong. Certainly my experience uh, in my work of children's social workers is that they go above and beyond, mostly speaking, what their contractual and their statutory obligations are. And as far as the government is concerned, the government really only reacts to populist politics, to the latest meme or ideology or the latest hobby horse, the latest cause that people get behind. And I think a good example of this is the story that I've just given you about these 16 to 17 year olds. If we're honest, how many of us actually remember that two or three weeks later? Probably very few. Let me think of another example, I'll give you another example. Um, a week and a half, two weeks ago, British Steel went into liquidation. And there was this big thing, well, the government should renationalize it. Um, there should be a rescue package. It went into liquidation. The news moves on, and it drops out from our public consciousness. You see, I would suggest that we are, as a society, uh, all to blame for being washed along in this sort of tidal wave of indignation replaced on a regular basis by the next thing that we need to complain about, the next thing we need to get on our hobby horse about. And what we don't do, perhaps, is stop and think about the bigger picture and uh, the society that we live in. But Nehemiah did. You probably were wondering if I was ever going to get back to chapter 5. We are now. So you've got your Bibles. They're open at page 344 if you're in the Red Bible. I'm going to read you, and you're going to follow on, the first 1 to 12 
first, uh, the verses uh, in 1 to 12, Nehemiah 5. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. And others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. And so I continued, what are you doing? What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we'll not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. So whilst chapter 4 is about opposition from others from outside Jerusalem, to the rebuilding of the walls. Chapter 5 starts with society in the grip of a crisis where the Jews are doing themselves down. The fact that um, chapter 5 is placed in the midst of the wall-building story, or wall-rebuilding story, suggests that it was having such a big impact that it was stopping the wall from being built. This wasn't just an economic downturn, as we know it. The children were being pressed into slavery. And who was causing the problem? Well, the Life Application Bible study notes say this. Who were these bitterly resented Jews? They were either Jews who had become wealthy in exile and brought the wealth with them to Jerusalem, or descendants of the Jews who arrived almost a century earlier during the first return when the temple was rebuilt and had established lucrative businesses. But the point of this is that faced with this famine, some of the Jewish people were taking extreme advantage of their fellow Jews to get richer while others suffered. Well, how's that applicable to us today? Firstly, we need to know that in doing God's work, we're likely to face opposition. And so there's an echo back to some of the earlier chapters there. And sometimes that opposition comes from within and not just without. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly for this morning, the passage is about how we treat others. There are different ways of looking at that. It might be how we take advantage of other believers if we frame ourselves as the um, uh, bitterly resented Jews. Um, If we think about how we might apply that to the King's Church today, maybe it challenges us on how we personally do church, how we live our lives in church, how we treat our fellow members of this church? Do we take advantage of others in the church and their generosity to serve, maybe speaking unkindly of others, maybe not appreciating the talents of those around us or the difficulties that they're facing? That's one way of looking at at it. And we can flip it around and we can ask ourselves whether uh, we are doing what we should be doing or not. 
Are we giving generously of our time or our tithe or our prayers or our hospitality? And if we take it outside our local situation in the church, clearly it's challenging us on how we respond to stories like the one in the news that I was telling you about and like the statistic that I read to you. Commentary on this passage, I I think, puts it very neatly. The way we help those in need ought to mirror God's love and concern. So what's our reflection? Well, I would suggest we need to ask ourselves how often we ask God how we should behave in our day-to-day lives, the things that we do in society and in our church and amongst our friends and our community. Are they what God wants us to do is the question we should be asking. And I'm not setting myself up on a pedestal because I think if I ask myself that question, the answer is probably rarely. I want to tell you a story about something that challenged me quite recently. Um, I went to have my shoes repaired. Um, I wouldn't exactly say it was a day-to-day experience, but it's not something uncommon. And I went into Timpson's in uh, uh, Abingdon at the Tesco's superstore there. And uh, on the counter, there were some little books like this. There were three of them in the series. And... um, it's a book that is, this one anyway, is called Looking After, Looked After Children. And it's written by Sir John Timpson. And I didn't know this, but it turns out Sir John Timpson of Timpson's Shoe Repairers is, um, was a foster parent of children himself and then became an adopter of children. And he has poured um, a lot of resources in terms of money and his time into um, supporting the needs of children in care. And it struck me, first of all, um, how he was using his position uh, and his um, uh, family company to do good. But it was more than that, actually, because having seen these little books and having an interest in this area, um, I asked the lady behind the counter about it, and and she told me my shoes were beyond repair, in case you were worried about that. (laughs) But then I then said, oh, I just wonder why you've got these books here. And she told me this story. And then, really enthusiastically, she went on to spend the next five minutes telling me about how Timpsons, the company, run annual camps for children who are in care and what a brilliant company it was and what fantastic work they were doing. And it struck me, again, it's not just the man at the head of this organisation, but it's the attitude that he has instilled in his employees which came out in how she was talking to me about the work that they were doing. This wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to the latest media storm. It was calm, calculated, thoughtful focus on a problem affecting vulnerable children in our society. Uh, And it involved generously spreading the word, which brings me on to the next bit of Nehemiah chapter 5. Because in the um, English Standard Version, this next section from verse 14 is headed Nehemiah's generosity, Now, time is getting a little bit short, so I'm not going to read it all out, um, but uh, let me just paraphrase it. Nehemiah was appointed to be governor uh, in the land of Judah, and um, as governor, he had certain privileges, one of which was to take um, a a large um, uh, contribution from the society towards his wine cellar, I suppose, to put it 
bluntly. Um, but he chose not to do that. And then I want to just pick up at verse 17, uh, if you've got that in your Bibles. Having set that out, it says this, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. And then he goes on to say how every day they were fed and how they were fed. And, and the, word, the, the passage, four chapter, uh, verse 14 and verse 17, start with moreover and furthermore in the NIV translation. And what they describe is Nehemiah going above and beyond what was required of him in his position. He chose not to take what he was entitled to, and he chose to bless abundantly and generously those people who served under him. He wasn't just sticking to the rules. He wasn't just persevering on the work of the walls. He isn't just lending money without charging interest, but he's going one step further and not living by the expectations of those around him. And so, again, to paraphrase the words of Frank Sinatra, I'm not going to sing it this time, Nehemiah chose to do it God's way. And we can be pretty sure that it was God's way because... When it was first brought to him, brought to his attention, that um, there was suffering amongst the Jewish people, he reflected on what was happening before acting. And we know from what's gone before, from what I've told you about, about his praying and fasting, if you remember, between November and March, before he spoke to the king about coming back to Jerusalem. We know that he's a man of God. We know that he's a man that seeks out God's will. And we know from the text in chapter 5 itself, that he invoked God's um, rebuke on those who didn't do what he told them to do in relation to charging interest. So I want to just finish by uh, spending the next five minutes drawing it all together. Um, because when I first looked at this passage, I couldn't quite see how that first section, Nehemiah's instruction, fitted with the second section, Nehemiah's generosity. But I think it's in this way. Nehemiah didn't just complain about what was going on around him in society. Nehemiah did two things in response. First of all, he got on and used his position to speak to others about what they were doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And then, moreover, or furthermore, he lived above and beyond what was required of him, not taking his full salary not behaving the way society expected him to. And I wonder if there's a challenge to us here. In fact, that's a little bit mealy-mouthed. I don't wonder that at all. There is a challenge here for us, I think. And it's a challenge to ask ourselves how we respond to the expectations of society and how we give of our time and of our money and of our hospitality and our skills. And that might be in our little local area. That might be in our church. I spoke briefly already about tithing and about um, giving generously of our time, serving on a rota. But it might be in society as a whole. And there might be things that you're involved in that you don't really see are connected to um, God's will. Maybe you're a school governor. Maybe you're on the PTA. Maybe you're a parent at the school gate. Those are all positions of responsibility that you are in, just as Nehemiah was in a position of responsibility. And so maybe it's a challenge to think, what is God's will 
for me in this situation. So I've put two questions or two, a series of two questions at the end of the handout, which is why I thought it was important to put it in your hand to take away. Because what I really want to encourage you to do is to ask yourself this. How do I make choices about how I spend my time and money? Is it by seeking God or is it based on the expectations of society? And then how do I react? By following society's expectations or norms or standing up for what I believe in and living it out moreover than I'm required to do? And there are lots of different areas that this can be applied to. And again, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here because these are questions I need to ask myself as well. How do I choose to spend my money? How do I behave on social media? How do I use my time? Am I doing things the way I'm doing them because I want to conform to what my friends are doing and what the rest of society thinks I should be doing? Or am I asking God, Lord, how do you want me to be spending my money and my time? And then I want us to pray. And I want us to do that, if it's all right with Paul, uh, in the last minute or so that we've got left. Um, I want us to pray for God to highlight one thing in our lives this morning. Um, that we can go away this morning and reflect on. Um, one thing that God is putting on our hearts as something that we are doing not because God wants us to do it, but because we want to fit in with what society is doing. And invite God to come and speak to us about that and show us uh, how he wants us to do it. So perhaps with your permission, or I suppose more realistically Paul's permission, <laughs> I'm just going to invite us to close our eyes if you're comfortable doing that. And we're just going to spend 30 seconds or so um, just inviting God to point something out to us that he's challenging or wants to challenge us on. And then I'm going to finish by praying and I'll hand back to Paul. I want to pray that you will just identify one thing, big or small, that we're not doing your way. Lord, I just want to thank you that as we're praying this, people are sensing what it might be. Maybe something that um, they've thought about before, maybe something that comes out of the blue, just something niggling away recognize that we recognize it's not right it's not your way thank you Lord Lord we want to honor uh, you speaking to us about that this morning and we want to be bold in addressing it we might need help, we might need to talk to someone about it, we might need to pray about it quietly ourselves. 
But my prayer this morning is that we do not forget it. We don't um, move on as we do from stories in the news to the next big thing. But that you keep prompting us to reflect on this over the course of the next few days and week. So that we really can understand what your will is. And we can have the confidence to put that into effect in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Richard.